Welcome to It Waits in the Shadows. My name is Katie, and I will be discussing horror movie monsters and villains. I'm warning you now, like every backwoods gas station local in said movies. Go no further. Turn back before it's too late. For now, we are about to enter the territory of spoilers. So if you haven't seen today's subject, An American Werewolf in London, hit pause and get watching, because today, you are in for a ride. Before we get started, I would like to say that there is now an It Waits in the Shadows Facebook page where you can keep up to date on episode info. There isn't a website yet, but you can help. Just go to www.patreon slash itwaitsintheshadows.com to donate. It only takes $60 to run an online store but, at the moment, an extra $60 a month is out of my budget. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be a great place to get merchandise and special content. Thank you for listening, and back to the show. An American Werewolf in London is a 1981 film directed and written by John Landis. The cast includes David Naughton as David Kessler, Griffin Dune as Jack Goodman, and Jenny Agutter as Nurse Alex Price. In this story, two American college kids, David and Jack, go backpacking in Europe, specifically in Great Britain. After going into a bar to shake off the English chill with a hot drink and dinner, they encounter the townsfolk. Cue the cliché shot of everyone stopping mid-sentence to stare. David and Jack are understandably off-put. They try to laugh it off and put the locals at ease by being polite. Eventually, everyone starts to relax, until the topic of the supernatural and werewolves is brought up. They are told to leave and to stick to the roads and stay off the moors. The townsfolk even cover their tab. So once again, David and Jack find themselves in the cold, trying to find the nearest inn and, of course, to make it quicker, they take a shortcut through the moors. And that's when they hear, not quite a howl, but more like an inhuman scream, over and over. For several seconds, they change direction, run, and deviate further from the road until they get brutally attacked by a monstrous creature that the locals know to be a werewolf. As a sort of repentance for sending the boys out with the beast, the townsfolk come to the rescue and manage to save David with noticeable claw marks on his face and chest. Jack is not so lucky. Bits of him are left scattered around his gutted corpse. However, David isn't much better off, being left with a case of severe PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and the curse of the beast. You see, the villain is neither David nor the man who infected him. It is the lichen infection itself. Werewolf lore is spread throughout history, film, and even fiction and nonfiction literature. But because the show focuses on movie monsters and villains, I will focus on film lore. Typically, the only way to come to become a lycanthrope is to contract the condition from a scratch or a bite. The affected person is usually unable to control their transformation on the full moon 
and in most cases forget their human life, their conscience, and even the people they love. A common scenario in movies is the werewolf is confronted by someone they love, trying to get them to remember who they really are and to stop the carnage. It is usually in the facial reactions of the werewolf that we see that they may start to register that this is someone they care about and would never hurt. But the beast takes over and goes in for the kill. This indicates that the human side may be forced into the subconscious, unable to fight the will of the wolf. One movie where that is not the case is Cursed. More experienced and skilled werewolves can learn to control at what pace they transform and can even learn how to control themselves in a wolf form, to an extent. Although typical symptoms include incredible strength, speed, stealth, and a never-ending carnivorous appetite, other, in other details vary. Take for instance the wolves from Dog Soldiers. They are highly intelligent, are able to plan and strategize in order to succeed in the hunt. They also work in packs like real wolves do. Most others are portrayed as impulsive in their kills and work alone with the main reason being that they are the only werewolf that they know exists. In David's case, in An American Werewolf in London, it appears that the werewolf infection causes the affected person to feel a lack of hunger while in human form, have a high libido, experience extreme heat and pain during the transformation, feel physically invigorated the day after transformation, and experience amnesia of the wolf activities. He doesn't remember anything he did in his wolf form or even the transformation. He experiences it like a blackout. This means that any infected person wouldn't know that they're infected. They might think that they're only experiencing periodic blackouts. The only plausible ways that they may find out are, one, if they killed someone they live with and discover the body. Even then, they might think a maniac or a wild animal broke in and did it. Or two, one of their victims living in limbo visit them and tell them what happened, like Jack did with David. But then even David didn't believe Jack at first. He thought he was a hallucination due to the trauma he survived. This is what makes it, this particular wolf strain so terrifying. The person infected may not know until much, much later if they are able to connect the dots between their amnesia and the killings. Then there is a character of the person. Are they the kind of person that would kill themselves to protect others? Would they lock themselves in an inescapable cell during the full moon? Who knows? Especially when the kill method is so brutal. The infection makes the person in the transformed state slaughter as many people as possible that come across their path. They have strength, speed, agility combined with incredibly sharp teeth and claws. When they do start in on a prey, they don't stop until the prey is left in nothing more than mangled pieces. No one survives unless someone else intervenes with a gun, explosive, or something else that lets you kill without having to get too close to the wolf. Now, for fun facts, except we covered pretty much everything about the infection.
So how about some fun David facts instead? David was written as being Jewish. This isn't really significant until you take a closer look at his PTSD-induced nightmares. They're filled with monsters wearing Nazi uniforms, horrendously murdering his family and destroying his childhood home before they kill him. They even murder Nurse Alex in front of him, de destroying every source of love and comfort in his life. He may subconsciously associate the horrors of Nazism and the Holocaust with the recent horrors he endured. He also has dreams or vivid fantasies about him literally being a monster. He has two specific visualizations where two things remain constant. One, he is naked. And two, he's in the woods. The fact that he is naked may imply that he is extremely insecure or vulnerable with what is happening and what he is seeing. It may also imply that he is naked as an animal would be. I believe the fact that he is in the woods implies that he is either lost in his new surroundings or circumstances or that he is in his new habitat as a wolf. It's all open to interpretation. In one visualization, he's hunting a deer. This may indicate his underlying carnivorous cravings. In another, Nurse Alex approaches him while he is sleeping in a hospital cot. One quick cut later, and his face is of a monster. At this point, David doesn't believe he's a werewolf, so this may represent that he feels like a monster for leaving Jack at first and he's afraid Nurse Alex will see that part of him. Keep in mind that these theories are my interpretations of what we are shown in the movie. They aren't facts, but educated guesses. There aren't a lot of what most would call interesting facts about David Kessler. He's an average Joe. He's, he was born and raised in America to a middle-class family. He has a younger brother and sister, attended college, and wanted to go backpacking with his best friend. From what I could gather, he had a happy, normal life. Until he was attacked. The only way to kill the lichen infection is to kill all the lichens. The following is completely hypothetical. I'm not telling you to actually kill anyone, just mythical lichens. What is the best way to kill a lichen? In my opinion, the best way to kill them is in human form. They aren't nearly as dangerous, and you are far less likely to be infected or killed. The method I would use is slipping them a fast-acting poison. That way it would be painless, and they wouldn't suspect anything. If you do run across one in wolf form, I would suggest using a method that wouldn't require you to get too close, like a shotgun. You don't have to be a particularly good shot to hit anything with that, and it gets the job done. So what are the chances of surviving a lycanthrope? We have to consider a lot of variables. Are they in human or wolf form? Do you have a weapon? How close are you? Do you have enough time to react? With Jack and David, they had zero chance of surviving without the outside help that saved David. They probably could have saved Jack, too, if the townsfolk had came two minutes earlier. They had several factors against them. They couldn't see the beast until it was already attacking them, they didn't have any weapons to protect themselves with, 
and they couldn't see and didn't know anywhere safe to run to. However, the man on the train platform had the highest chance of survival out of all of David's victims. He was in a well-lit area and knew exactly where he was and where all the exits were. He had time to run. However, he had three things working against him. He didn't have a weapon, David was faster, and he panicked. Now on to fun movie facts. The following is a fantastic, comprehensive compilation of the same facts that kept coming up in my searches. According to GeekyRant.com's article, 15 Fun Facts About an American Werewolf in London by Joey Parr, this is the first movie to win an Academy Award for Best Makeup. The category was created in 1981. It's also the only John Landis movie to win an Academy Award. All the songs that were used in the film had the word moon in their titles. Landis was inspired to write the script for the movie after an experience he had while shooting Kelly's Heroes in the countryside of Yugoslavia. Apparently, while he was driving along a country road, he encountered a gypsy funeral. The body was being buried in a massively deep grave, feet first, while wrapped in garlic, so that he would not rise from the dead. It took Landis over eight years to get this movie into production, and he wanted Rick Baker to do the makeup effects and design work. Baker got tired of waiting and decided to use what he had been developing for the film on another movie, The Howling. Landis eventually called Baker and told him, quote, I have the money. Let's make American Werewolf. Baker then told him that he was already making a werewolf movie. After Landis yelled at Baker over the phone, he decided to leave the howling in the hands of his protege, Rob Bowton, and only consulted on it. This way, he could work on an American werewolf in London. Reportedly, Rick Baker's initial decision is something that Landis has never forgiven him for. Studio executive wanted Landis to cast Dan Aykroyd in the role of David and John Belushi as Jack. The director refused. Baker and Landis had a lot of disagreements over what the final design of the werewolf should be. Baker wanted it to be a two-legged werewolf, saying he thought werewolves as being a bipedal. Landis wanted a four-legged hound from hell. Actor Griffin Dune said that one of his biggest fears about the movie was that his mother, who was ill at the time, wouldn't be able to handle seeing him as a mutilated corpse. At the close of the credits, there is a congratulatory message for the wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. The reason it was included was because when David is trying to get arrested, he shouts, Prince Charles is a not so nice word for a gay person. The film was shot months before preparations for the wedding in 1981. The movie was filmed in sequence with the opening scenes filmed first and the closing sequences filmed last. When trying to call home, the telephone number that David Kessler gives the operator, 516-472-3402, contains a Long Island, New York area code. This is also a rare case in which an actual phone number is used in a movie. 
Landis had to avoid filming any full frontal nudity of David Naughton during the famous transformation scene and dream sequences after Naughton informed Landis he was not circumcised. What's funny about this is that the character David Kessler was written as being Jewish. Naughton said the transformation scene took six days to complete. He spent 10 hours a day getting the makeup applied, 5 hours on set, and 3 hours of makeup removal. Because the makeup took so long to apply and remove, there was only enough time for one setup a day. Baker estimated that only half an hour of footage was shot during the entire week. The last, she the last scene shot was a snap protrusion, but it did not include Naughton. They used an animatronic head. Baker was disappointed by the amount of time spent shooting the face changing shot for the main transformation scene after having spent months working on the mechanism. Landis only required one take that lasted about seven seconds. Baker felt he had wasted his time until he saw the film with an audience that plotted during the one seven second shot. Landis has a brief cameo in the movie near the end. He is a bearded man who gets hit by a car and thrown through the plate glass window in Piccadilly Circus. Landis advised Dune that the key to his character of Jack Goodman was that he was always to be encouraging, optimistic, and cheerful as a member of the undead, no matter what his stage of ghastly corporal decay, deterioration, and decomposition. Dune claimed to have found it, this requirement to be difficult as he was seeing what he would look like as a rotting and mutilated corpse. And lastly, a couple of details I noticed in the credits. In the opening credits, one of the production companies is listed as a Lycanthrope Films Limited Production. In the closing credits, it says, all characters in this film are fictitious. Any similarity to actual events or persons, living, dead, or undead, is purely coincidental. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. New episodes will come out every Friday, and if you like what you hear and want to support future episodes in exchange for amazing Patreon gifts, head to www.patreon.com. You can find episodes on soundcloud.com, and I'm working to get it on more platforms to reach more of you amazing listeners. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. You can keep up with episode information on Facebook page It Waits in the Shadows. Next week's movie will be The Evil Dead, the Sam Raimi 1981 version. Until next time, get watching.